Kelsey, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Thanks, Bill. I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing really good and uh, grateful for this chance to sit down with you and have a conversation about your story. Uh, the last the listeners heard was we interviewed this uh, really awesome woman named Mikkel. Uh, and, and now we told the audience that we'd be interviewing uh, the other half. Uh, I won't say better because I don't want to pick favorites, but uh, <laughs> but uh, interview the other half and uh, get uh, her story. And so let's start with that. Um, maybe start us off first. Let's uh, let's just have you kind of introduce yourself to the audience, uh, give them a little bit of background of kind of you know who you are at the moment, um, you know, kids and things like that, and and you know what you're trying to to kind of do, and um, and then we'll jump kind of into your story. Sure. Um, I am actually going to school right now. I'm in the field of psychology. I'd love to be a therapist someday for family marriage counseling. I have two little kids. I have an eight-year-old that's a little girl and a six-year-old boy, fiery red hair and an attitude to to match that. Um, <laughs> they are... The joy of my life. I love my children, um, and uh, I'm I'm just hoping to be able to reach out to people who have a similar story like me and let them know that they're not alone. So let's go. Uh, let's start off with your childhood. And when we when we talk to Mikkel, I mean, obviously a a, a rougher. Uh, upbringing and your story is a lot different. So let's start mm-hmm. with uh, with your childhood. Maybe just tell us kind of your family dynamics, uh, siblings, those kinds of things, and uh, any other any early memories you've got there that you think are important. Yeah, my family uh, very different from Mikkel's. I grew up in a beautiful home. Um, my parents both just very loving and uh, there for me in in every aspect that I really needed as a child. Um, I I really never felt wanting for anything um, except for, okay, and, and something to, I'm going to put out there so the listeners can understand me a little bit better. Um, I'm very much a, a people pleaser and my life, all of my life, I have stro- I have striven to be able to to please other people, and um, and especially my parents, especially my mother, um, and it's really difficult for me to talk, thinking about um, speaking about my life and about my experiences with my family made me really nervous because I didn't want to say anything that would hurt them. And, uh, and I'm learning to let that go. And so this is, this is a kind of a difficult thing for me, but I am going to just be very honest and not, not leave anything out and not sugarcoat anything to, uh, to make it softer, easier for anyone to hear. And, uh, so with that said, um, as a child, I did not receive all of the emotional 
love that I and support that I would have liked from my mother. Um, she was a very get things done. This is how it is. If you're struggling with anything, you figure out a way to deal with it. Um, I didn't feel like I could really show my emotions very much with with my mother um, or my father as much. Uh, he was a little bit more emotional than my mother was, believe it or not. Um, but he was at work a lot of the time. So my memories of my father more are him coming home from work and us kids like squealing, you know, ah, ah, running away and and uh, climbing up onto the, we had bunk beds and climbing into the top bunk bed and hiding against the wall and he'd sneak in and, you know, and growl and reach in for us and tickle us. And so I have some very fond memories of my father that way. Um, and, and it's hard for me to, to, uh, cause I, I understand where my, my mother comes from because as a mother myself, you're home all day with the kids and you have all of these other responsibilities to do and to get done. And so I, I completely understand it, the difference between my mother and my father and why those dynamics were different just because of their roles in the home. Um, but in all reality, my, my childhood was, was beautiful. Um, I, the only other thing that I, I would say I struggled with was not having the best of communication with my parents, I think, just because it was that idea always that things are, things are good. We were trying to put on this, this picture of perfection. And I felt that especially with, with my mom, she cares very much about what other people think and what you know, how, what other people see and how it affects them and, and what they think of her and our family. And so it was this silent thing of, <laughs> we just, we're good. We, we don't have any problems. There's no issues. Everything's perfect. Um, and so that's kind of how I, I grew up. It was happy. It was good for the most part. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, there's, my life was very different from Mikkel's and yet there were still those issues and those shadows within my childhood that made it difficult. Right. So I want to hit on a couple things here, which is this idea of having to look perfect. And I, I, I don't, I don't remember feeling that. So I, again, I grew up out of the church, right? I, I grew up in a home mm -hmm. that was just so far away from Mormonism that Mormonism was not even something that was in our vocabulary. Um, we were in Ohio, just a Midwestern family. And I don't remember that. I don't remember having to look perfect. I don't remember my parents trying to look perfect. I mean, our lives were a little messy, but it was a good family. It was a good home. And we just were, and it felt like everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, it felt like everybody could, s could see us, could tell like we were what you saw. Mm. Um, and it, But as soon as I joined Mormonism, it feels very different. I remember wanting my family to look perfect and being disappointed when my wife or my children or myself acted in a way that we ruined that perfect tapestry that we were putting on. Right. Um, 
I wonder if maybe you could talk about that for a moment, because I think listeners are going to connect to that. And I don't have the Mormon childhood to relate that to. I, I have it as a parent. Your thoughts, maybe some of the experiences, some of the, if you have any recollections, anything that you remember, like where, when you, when you didn't look perfect as a family or, or ways in which you tried to look perfect as a family, I, I guess I'm trying to kind of get at that because I think most people feel that inside Mormonism. Yeah, um, I know that within my family, um, so my family's all uh, in the church, and my mom's family, most of them are within that, in, within the church as well. And there's, uh, there has always been this feeling of almost competition between my mom and her sisters um, in whose family was more perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and they they never say it out loud, but it was like, you know, oh, my, my kids are doing this and my kids are doing that. And, you know, just kind of putting themselves up and saying, like, look, this is how perfect my family is. And um, I remember little things with my mom, just she would make comments like, what if the neighbors saw that or what if, you know, so and so saw this and. And just little things like that that would make me think, why why do you care so much what other people think? And yet, as much as I hated that, it really did become a part of my life and who I was and part of that people pleaser in me of what do other people see and what are they thinking and what can I do to possibly make them see the best of me and that my life is happy and, and perfect. And that actually didn't start clicking in until about the age of of 10 or 11 when I had this moment of, um, I, don't, I don't know what to call it, but I had this thought that, you know, I, I'm going to be happy. But it, before that, I had started to realize my sexuality and that started to make a change in my life where I wasn't as happy and I could tell things weren't perfect. And so that was difficult for me. I don't know if you're, if you wanted to talk, jump into that yeah. or not. Yeah. There's some things. So as you were talking about the question I asked, it, it comes up for me that we live in a culture when I'm talking Mormonism, we, we live in a culture where, we only tell our best stories, our faith-promoting stories, not just in our religion, but in our families, right? Right. And when things don't go well, those stories we hide, those stories we don't share. And, and we almost pick it up when you, when you stop and think about it. Like we, we now realize kind of on the outside, like, oh, Mormonism did that. It only told uh, its best stories and it embellished them and it avoided telling its bad stories. But on the other hand, I think we as people in this thing picked up on that habit too, where we only show people our best stories and we hide our worst. Mm -hmm. um, so you talk about this idea of, of 10 or 11 years old, you make this decision to be happy. But prior to this, you come to this realization that uh, you're beginning to notice your sexuality. I, I wonder, like, again, t t because there's people out there, everybody's story is different. Maybe walk us through as you started to say, like, wait a minute, I don't think I'm like Jenny next door. I think I'm different. Can you maybe walk us through what that looked like? 
Yeah. So when I was younger, I just remember we moved to St. George. We moved from Cedar City to St. George. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, we moved into this home and uh, right around the corner was this girl that became my best friend. And I had the biggest crush on her. We would get together and play all the time. And when we would play house, I was always the dad and she was always the mom. And we had another friend in the neighborhood who would come over and play with us too. And I, I just remember that I always wanted the girl that I had a crush on to be the mom and I would be the dad, you know, and, and just, you know, little things like that, that I didn't at the time I was young enough that I didn't understand and I didn't realize what that was. Um, and then what did you do? What did you do when the other girl wanted to be the mom? I just said, no, I think, I think she would make a better mom. I think she should be the mom. And then if the other friend ever became the mom, then I was like, oh, I'll be something else this time <laughs> instead of being the dad. Yeah, right. I'll be was, the kid this time or I'll be the yeah, neighbor. Yeah, right. right. Yes, something different. So uh, just kind of kind of interesting. Um, in school, there was – I remember a time when we had a student teacher come into class. And so she was this younger, you know, young woman. Um, and she was beautiful. She was gorgeous and she was so – sweet. She was so kind. And I had the biggest, I'm sure all of the other boys in the classroom had a crush on her and I had a crush on her too, right along with them. <laughs> she was, she, you know, and so there were, there were these things that, like I said, at the time I had no idea really what it was or what they meant. Um, as I got older, I started to have dreams about, about women where I would rescue them or I would be having these feelings for them. And as I got older, that began to scare me because of what, because of what I had learned within the church and what I had been taught. And, you know, I had actually never in my home, we had never talked about uh, gay people. We'd never talked about any of the LGBTQ community before. And um, we never had a reason to. And later I find out from my mom that she, she honestly didn't know much about them. And so she just avoided them or the topic because there was no reason to, to talk about it. Um, do you, but ever, I, do you ever remember kind of feeling out like, uh, like giving your mom or your dad, um, telling them a, a, an experience you had or a, or trying to hint at them to see, kind of feel out whether this was going to be okay in this house or not? No, no, I, I was terrified. I was terrified of failing or being something that I, I wasn't supposed to, supposed to be. So I, that fear of disappointment or anger or <laughs> what if, like, what could happen if I, if I tell then that, that fear was enough to keep my mouth shut. And I never, never even asked any questions about it. Right. So as you're, as you're having these experiences as a, as a young kid and you don't quite know how to name it, like you just know, like 
Hmm, that's interesting. Um, my mm-hmm. my focus seems to be on females and not on males. Um, but you do, but you don't know what to call it. You don't know exactly what it is. At what point do you start to realize, like, oh, now I know what this is? It was when I was it was ten or eleven. Um, I was at the summer camp, and I realized what it was. And I had heard about this at church and, you know, how it wasn't good. And the realization of what it was just hit me. And I became extremely sad and just very, you know, this, I was in a sense, I think, depressed at that time because I I realized what it was and what I couldn't be. And um, it was at that time, I remember we were playing at a park at this summer camp. And I went and I sat down at this tree, um, base of this tree, and I and kids were off playing. Nobody even noticed me or, or even cared. You know, they were off doing their own thing. And I was just sitting here in this turmoil of my mind and my emotions. What do I do? What do I, how do I figure this out? How do I make this work? And it was at that point that I decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep this hidden. I'm going to keep this quiet and I'm not going to let it affect me. I was determined to just live the gospel the best that I could and, and overall be happy. I was determined no matter what. Life was going to suck at times, but I was going to be happy. And I made that commitment there and then. And from that moment, things did change for me. And I tried extremely hard to to live the gospel and not let my sexuality take control of me. Yeah, I think it's important to note, as you're telling the story, and I've heard others talk about coming to a realization that their sexuality was... Um, different than their peers as early as eight or nine years old. And you're talking about 10 or 11. And we often think that sexuality somehow kind of magically comes in with puberty, right? Right. And and the reality is that the messaging we get and who we are, uh, both nature and nurture, and and I'm not talking about the fact that, that nurture makes us gay. I'm talking about that we get messages about whether uh, our sexuality is going to be acceptable or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that those those come from uh, our environment, whether that's uh, we're going to have the approval of our parents, whether we're going to have the approval of our church. Kids are getting those messages early, number one. And number two, they're coming to a realization about their sexuality, many of them, at a much younger age than puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I just want to throw that out because I, I want the audience to recognize like, oh, I probably ought to be a lot more sensitive to this topic than you know, putting something in my head that says that, you know, when, when these kids turn 11, 12, 13 years old, that's when I'll start worrying about this. No, no, no. We ought to start being concerned about this way early on as parents and as friends and family in a community, right? Um, um, so with that, you make this determination, I'm going to be happy. You kind of come to this realization like, oh, I don't fit in well here, but I'm going to just keep this hidden and put a smile on my face and figure out how to be content with life. Uh, where do things go from there? 
Um, from there, I, I had set this, this standard for myself. I know in Mikkel's life, she, her father set this bar for her that, that she could never reach. And for myself, I set a bar for myself that essentially (laughs) I could never reach. Um, I, I had very high expectations of myself. My, my parents never really had to punish me ever because I punished myself. Um, I all I had to do if I did something wrong, I knew that I was disappointing my parents, and that alone was enough to to tear me apart and to make me want to to try even harder. Um, as I got older, I just immersed myself within the church, within the gospel. I did seminary in high school. I was I. I was that that person that memorized all the scripture, mastery scriptures, and was involved and um, involved in everything that I could be within the church. I was the president of almost every class that I went into in in um, young women's from beehives up to Maya maids, and uh, I I just. I read the scriptures on my own. My my family, we did daily scripture reading, early scripture reading in the mornings before school. And I, I did that. I did anything and everything that I could. I joined the word choir because I love to sing and just <laughs> in every possible way, try to be the best person that I could be that I knew my parents wanted me to be. Yeah, and I and so I want to ask something here, and, I, and I'm fearing as I'm going to ask this that I'm going to offend people in the audience, and I I don't hope that's I hope that's not the case. So, I, so I know you. You and I are good friends, and I consider like when I look at you, I see someone who's very um, feminine. Um, as a male looking at a female, you're very attractive. Um, but I also notice there's some like boyish tendencies. And in, in yes. you. like you're, and I wonder maybe if you could talk about that for a moment because what I'm guessing is you're trying to hide this, and probably nobody's picking up on it. But my guess is that that carried with you through your life. Like you tended to to gravitate a slightly less to the the the, the feminine things that the other girls were doing, and to gravitate to some of these boy things that boys were doing. Oh yeah, for sure. I was a. Uh very much a tomboy <clears throat> growing up. And so in elementary, when the girls were playing hopscotch and with their little dolls and stuff at school, beanie babies were a big thing at the time. Um, I was out on the field playing flag football with, with the boys. And um, I, I love, <clears throat> I loved playing and interacting and doing the boy things. And it is funny because I am very much a, I'm a very petite, um, (laughs) small, small woman. Um, and I am very, very feminine. Um, and yet I do have this connection. I feel like with that, with that, that masculine side of me. And I, I truly believe that there is a spectrum of, of not necessarily, I mean, we have the Kinsey scale for, you know, homosexuality, but I think that there's also a scale 
within every person of their male and female. And some are more in tune with their male, excuse me, with the male or the female in them. And I am very much a woman and I, I feel that within myself as a woman. Um, and yet I also feel like I am a little more in touch with my masculine side than, um, than a lot of other women are. And I, 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 that has allowed me to have some wonderful friendships with men through, throughout my life. I connect very well. Um, and it's, it's been quite a journey. It, it's funny because my mom talks about how when I, when I was a kid, I was so, I was a tomboy. I loved to play sports. I loved to get dirty and, and climb trees and do all of the things that the boys love to do, but that never raised any flags for her. And it doesn't necessarily have to because there are women who are tomboys that are not gay. So that isn't necessarily a factor. So for all of the listeners who are listening and you have a child, a girl that's <laughs> a tomboy, doesn't necessarily mean that they're gay. Um, but it was still, it was a shock for my parents when, when I ended up coming out, they never saw it coming. My mom, I hated dresses. My mom knew that, but you know, it, I wore dresses anyway, because that's, I mean, you have to wear a dress to go to church. So I wore dresses and, um, I just, yeah, I <laughs> living the life of having both of those in me was was different, but it, I I've really enjoyed having that in my life. You you didn't get any pushback then. It sounds like from your family. Did did the kids on the playground? Did they welcome you onto the the boys in the playground? Did they welcome you onto the field? Did anybody? Did the girls ever say like, "Hey, come over here"? And was there any kind of pushback from any uh, any area of your life as your as your engaging yourself in what we would consider more masculine activities? Nope. I never, I never received any pushback when I was younger. Um, as I remember going into fifth grade, some of the boys that I had been playing with, I think this is when we're starting to move into that, you know, girls have cooties kind of thing. Um, I just remember some of the boys making fun of me in fifth grade and, um, laughing at me because when I, when I was walking to school with some girls, they were just laughing at me and making fun of me. And I remember that hurting a lot just because I had played with the boys so much and I felt like we were friends. And so that I remember hurt a lot. And I remember as I started getting older, I began to balance out those so that my intense desire to, you know, interact and play and do the boy things didn't overpower the the feminine side. And I began to learn that balance of, okay, this is, this is okay. And this is not okay. You know, if I go too far, if I do too much. So I actually didn't, um, I didn't like makeup. I didn't want to wear makeup. And in about my junior year of high school, my mom finally convinced me to start wearing makeup. And so I started wearing makeup. Um, my hair was always a little bit longer. I, 
my hair doesn't do well very long. So I, it was always down to about my shoulders. Um, but you know, I, and I always had a hard time doing my hair. I hated doing my hair. So the majority of the time I would put my hair up in a ponytail, um, and just have it that way all the time. So I, I tried, I, my, my, know my mom was desperately trying to help me to, to reach into that feminine side of myself. And I just struggled with that in high school because here you have all of these girls who are, who are, you know, wearing makeup and hair curled and so cute. And here I was just wanting to wear t-shirts and, and shorts and have my hair in a ponytail. But I began to learn what was, what was expected of me and started to fall into that role of, okay, wearing makeup and maybe a little more feminine clothing and just to make myself fit in. Yeah. I, I'm trying to picture you with longer hair because I've always known you with short hair. And, <laughs> and uh, another thing too, and this kind of goes off this, um, this will be kind of a little inter- interesting little tidbit for the audience, but you and I once had a little wrestling match uh, and you handled yourself pretty darn good. Um, I know you've got a little bit kind of an athletic, uh, almost kind of an octagon uh, attitude, uh, UFC kind of fighter <laughs> attitude sometimes. And um, uh, I'm just curious. I'm just curious if you if you ever felt like you missed out on something. Like did, like did you want to go out for the wrestling team? Did you did you want to do any of the boy events? And you just kind of said like, no, that's kind of expected me not to do that, so I'm not going to get involved there. No, I actually never had interest in wrestling when I was in high school or anything. What's funny is that um, after I divorced, I started training for MMA, um, which was really fun for me because I really enjoy the whole wrestling and the kickboxing thing. So, uh, But I, in high school, I never really had any desire for football or for wrestling. Um, I was involved in the soccer on the soccer team. I love soccer. So that for me was was good enough. I, I really wanted to do volleyball as well, but I hadn't had enough training in the as a you know younger kid. My parents we moved from from St. George to a little town called Monroe which is super small, uh, right as I was going into high school. So my freshman year, I was in a new place, new, new town, small, small town. Um, and their sports were very competitive because they were trying to <laughs> compete with all of these other small schools around them. And, and that was how they made a name for themselves. So their basketball team was intense. Their volleyball team was extremely competitive and, um, soccer was actually just a club. They didn't have soccer in the, in the high school. So they started up a club for the girls to do soccer. So I was lucky to have that and, and be involved in that in high school. And that was good enough for me. Awesome. So now we're in high school, walk us through what the high school experience looked like in this small I'm assuming kind of a highly Mormon town. Yes, very Um, much. Um, Yeah, very Mormon. Um, I guess just what that looked like. Yeah, coming in as a freshman and new, not knowing anybody was extremely hard. I remember struggling to make friends. And when you're in a small town, 
it's hard because everybody knows everybody. And so they have already had, they already have their groups, they have their cliques. And it was hard for me to establish myself in there. And high school was very awkward for me. I was trying to figure myself out. I, you know, and like I said, I, I really didn't like makeup. I didn't like fixing my hair cute. And so I was this awkward, you know, coming in from middle school, middle school is awkward. And I'm still just this awkward, (laughs) awkward girl. And, um, I really struggled to make friends. I was very much involved in music and I loved theater. So I was kind of that nerd within school, but I also loved soccer. And I remember coming in my senior year, we did the play Beauty and the Beast and I was Belle. And I would come in from soccer practice, kick off my cleats and just start like I was late for practice one for uh theater practice because I had been doing soccer practice. So I come in with grass and dirt all over me, kicking off my cleats and just jump into song singing, you know, my part. And it it just funny because once again, here's that very, here's the, here's the feminine and, and there's more of the masculine and blending those two together was, was, was fun, (laughs) a challenge at times, but it was fun. Um, as I, as I came up through high school, um, I began to become more confident in, in myself and start to figure myself out. A lot of the younger kids, by the time I was a senior, I had a lot of the sophomore and juniors who I feel like looked up to me and respected me who were within the, uh, within choir and within the, the theater area. Um, and also in soccer, um, as a senior, we had done very well within our, our soccer group. Um, I was the goalie. I was the keeper, short little me in the goalie box. Um, and we had, yeah, we had done very well. And so there was a lot of respect from the younger soccer players towards us older students who had established that soccer um as far as like as far as like relationships i mean are boys asking you out or i mean how are you handling that kind of dynamic and then maybe kind of what else is going on in high school in terms of relationships oh um boys didn't really ask me out i (laughs) i was awkward oh looking back i just laugh at myself i was so so awkward, just wanting to fit in so much. Um, I got asked to junior prom because it, in my small town, it was required that every junior girl get asked to prom. They, they're like, that's a must. So they pull boys out of the woodwork to ask if a girl hasn't been asked. They assign <laughs> boys to ask the girls. Yeah, Here's and your that, assigned date. Right. And that makes you now feel go good, like right? Now go like each other, right? <laughs> right. So um, there was actually a boy from a rival school from Richfield who asked me to go to junior prom. So that was super nice of him. Um, We knew each other through theater. But um, that time, there was only one other time that a boy asked me on a date. I did ask a 
couple of boys on like the to dance dates that was girls choice. Um, but I really didn't have guys, guys asking me to go to dances or anything. Um, the beginning of my senior year, I actually got a boyfriend and, uh, he was in student council and so was I. And he was a good friend of mine. He was actually really good friends with my younger brother as well. And so he was a cool kid. He was well-liked. Um, he was also in theater and music. And so we got along well. Um, needless to say, that relationship didn't go so well. <laughs> um, he, I just remember the first time he was my first boy kiss. He was my first he was my first kiss and I just remember kissing him and just being like, this is disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) It was not enjoyable at all. There was nothing pleasant about it. And I was just like, Oh, that's what it's like. Everybody always talks about how wonderful it is, but this is not enjoyable. This is not fun. And I don't, remember really kissing him very much um which is probably the reason why because (laughs) (laughs) it just i I didn't like it um and our our relationship didn't last super long that fell apart and then shortly after that fell apart i actually my best friend at the time her and i started to have a relationship but it was both of us were very aware, like both of us, you know, Mormon, both of us knew in this small community and everything, we had to be very careful. We cared for each other so much. And that connection that we had was so beautiful and wonderful that we didn't want to stop and we didn't. So our relationship continued through the rest of my senior year. And we continued our relationship through um, part of my freshman college experience. I would drive back home, not tell my parents um, that I was driving home. And I would go visit her and her parents would think that I had been home visiting my parents. And then I would say goodbye, walk out the door um, pull up the block aways, park, then crawl in through her bedroom window and spend the night with her. So wow. it was, yeah, yeah. We, we went through some great lengths and what's amazing to me is that we, we came very close to getting caught. Um, but nobody ever caught us. We, we were able to keep that a secret and I'm sure there were some of our, our fellow students, you know, our classmates that, that maybe assumed or thought, or I know that at one point I came home really late from, from being with my friend and my mom had been up waiting for me and she was very upset. And she was, she actually confronted me at that time and was like, are you gay? And that panic and that fear was so intense in me. And I immediately lashed back and I said, you think I'm gay? And I just 
railed into her and was so upset. And she was like, okay, like I, I was just asking. And so I totally missed that opportunity. I, I bypassed that chance. My mom had had kind of an, you know, that intuitive, like maybe she is gay and had kind of put it out there. But I was so afraid that I just swept it away. And I said, no, no, I'm not like I didn't want anybody to find out. I did not want anybody. Right. I, I want to ask, I mean, the not wanting anybody to know the worry and fear. I want to ask two things, which is and you've already kind of expressed it. So I think you're going to be re- reiterating yourself. But what are you afraid of? Number one. <clears throat> and num- <coughs> Excuse me. And number two. Is the fear is the fear based in how your family is going to react? Is the fear based on how the church is going to react? Is your fear based on um, how your friends at school are going to react? Like, like maybe kind of talk about how that's spread out among those groups and others, maybe, and kind of where the the strength of pressure is coming from. Yeah, I think the original fear. Um, um, what I was afraid of, first of all, was within my home. I was afraid of disappointing, of not living up to everything that my parents wanted and expected of me, because that people pleaser within me was so, so strong, so overpowering. It ruled my life. It literally ruled my life. And um, I, I know that it started there within my family. Like I wanted my parents to love me and not ever, you know, I didn't want that to change. And I was so afraid of what I would do, like what, what would happen to us and with them, if that happened. Um, I was also very much afraid of what my classmates would say or do to me. It was a small town. So, uh, I remember there only being one gay kid that was at least out in my school and he was very, he was very gay. Um, and he was open about it to everybody at school. He wasn't to his parents, but he was at school. Um, and just seeing some of the, he, he was bullied a bit. Um, not, not intensely. Nobody ever hit him or anything, but he got some, you know, words and stuff from, from the, from the jocks and, and different people. And so I, I had this expectation of what I was supposed to be at school as well and didn't want anybody to think any less of me at school. Um, and, and (laughs) the church definitely had a role in this. I, because of what the church had taught and what I knew from what it was, you know, marriage was supposed to be between a man and a woman and it was, it's all founded upon the family. And, and it was almost this abomination to, to go against that. Like you're, you're destroying everything. And so that whole idea, I'm that, that is what caused when I was crying in the shower, it, it was a combination of, I am feeling such intense love and passion and intimacy with this, with this girl. And yet I know that I can't do it. 
that I'm not supposed to do it. And she and I had had several conversations where she and I knew that this wouldn't last, that it couldn't last. Because as much as we loved each other, we knew what the church said. We knew what what the gospel laid out for us. And we were so entrenched in that, that we were willing to give. We knew that we had to eventually give each other up to be able to live according to what the gospel wanted us to do. And that was heart-wrenching. And yet it was our duty. That was what was expected of us through the church. And I had no idea how the church would react to me if I came out. Um, I was terrified to find out. I I didn't want to go there. Once again, disappointment to my parents and everything. It, it would be better to just keep it hidden because that uh, picture of perfection is better than having the truth. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and it feels like maybe what I'm about to ask is somewhat fluid. So I don't need, I, I'm not expecting you to say like, this is the way it was and it always felt this way. But so many of these stories uh, involve conversations about uh, whether whether you, like, like inside your head, you're like, look, I'm gay, I'm going to pretend, or... Or other stories involve this idea of um, maybe I'm not gay. Maybe I can fix it. Maybe I can pray it away. Maybe if I go to the temple. Maybe if I serve a mission. Maybe if I mm-hmm. um, if I just go ahead and get married. Like, where are you at in, inside your head during this high school time, in terms of how you think you being gay is going to be handled in the scheme of things? During high school, um, when I had this relationship with my friend. And I wasn't thinking about that beforehand. I I had been like, okay, if I if I I was right there. If I read my scriptures enough, if I if I do enough, if I pray enough, um, there were there were times when I would at night be on my knees praying to God and just crying and begging Him to please just take it away from me that I didn't want it. And when I got into this relationship with with my girlfriend, um, we were just so happy where we were that I wasn't thinking. And as teenagers, when do we think? Really, when do we think? Um, it's it's more about us and where we're at at the time. We don't, as at least for me, I wasn't thinking very much about the future. We knew that it had to come to an end at some point. But in the moment, we were just so happy and just so wanted to to enjoy where we were at that I wasn't really thinking about the consequences and about how it was going to change or what it was going to do. And it wasn't until um, a little bit into my my college, my freshman college year that I, cause I was, I was good. I kept going to church. I kept doing all of the things that I was supposed to do. And I was in this great ward. My Relief Society president was amazing. Um, and in these college wards, you know, they have college students who are, who are playing all of the parts except for, you know, the bishopric. You have these older gentlemen who are the bishopric, but our Relief Society president was a college student, and she was amazing. She's still one of my great friends today. 
Um, and she was actually one of the first people that I came out to because I just, I felt such comfort and love from her. And so I came out to her and I said, look, I have this girlfriend and I'm really struggling. And she's like, you need to go and talk to the bishop. And that terrified me because that would put my, my fault, my, my insecurity, this, this, this broken part of me out onto the table. And I don't want anybody to see that. And I mean, I hadn't even told my parents, I hadn't told anyone except for this Relief Society president. And so that was extremely difficult for me. But she was such a help to me. She, um, she just, she didn't judge me at all. She continued to love me. And, um, she was like, here, let's read scriptures, scriptures together. And she would, um, set up things for me, you know, to keep me rooted within the church because for her, I mean, at that time, that's, that was what was important for me. And that was important for where, where I was at that time. Um, and so I ended up going in and talking to my bishop and I, I told him that I had, uh, that I had been with another woman and he just took it very like, okay. And I was expecting some kind of like <laughs> lash out or like condemnation. And he just kind of was like, all right. And I said, and I've, I've done things with her. Like I've, I've been sexually interactive with her. And he was just like, okay. And he said, um, you know, if you want to continue, then, you know, to follow the path of, of Christ and of the church, then, you know, you need to end the relationship and you, you know, take the steps. And I was like, oh, okay. And so it ended up not being nearly as, as scary as I thought. I wasn't sure what was going to happen if I told the bishop. And this bishop was, he was amazing. Um, he didn't condemn me. He didn't make me feel uh, less than or that I was this, you know, broken, terrible thing. He just, he said, you know, just if, if this is the path that you want to take, if you want to be within, you know, stay within the church, then this is what, you know, the steps that you need to take and work towards forgiveness and the atonement and all those things. And so at that time, I broke up with my girlfriend. And that was one of the hardest things that I ever that I ever did. And she knew as well um, that this was that this had to be like uh, we both knew that it had to come to an end because we were both trying to stay within the church. Um, I mean, it was torture, though. We we both just cried and uh, it that was very, very difficult. So we uh, we broke that off. And then um, I just worked extra hard to continue to do what I was supposed to do. Um, and then my friend, the Relief Society president, she ended up leaving and going to serve a mission. And when she left, to my surprise, the bishop 
called me to be Relief Society president. <laughs> and that was very much a shock for me because, first of all, I had already confessed to him that I was a lesbian. I was attracted to women. And for him to do that for me meant so much because I didn't want him to be afraid of me. I didn't want anybody. I didn't want anybody to be afraid of me. I wasn't a monster. I wasn't this, oh, this weird, you know, well, I'm not attracted to every woman, <laughs> which seems to be this weird thing that we're attracted to every woman because we're a lesbian. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, and him giving me that position just made me feel okay that he wasn't afraid of me and that he knew that I wasn't a threat among the women in our church. And so at that time, I buckled down even more and just tried to do everything I possibly could to to follow the path and do what I was supposed to do. And part of me, part of me really thought at this time, if if I work hard enough, if I pray enough, if I read my scriptures enough, if I do everything that I'm supposed to do, this is going to go away. I'm not going to have this this problem anymore. I'm not going to be attracted to women. I'm going to be okay. And and, uh, and then that's when my my ex my now ex husband um, came into the picture. Awesome. We will, and we'll get to that here too in two seconds. I want to kind of follow up a little bit with this bishop. So, um, when we're in the church and we're believing, we have this belief in our theology as well as in our culture that these bishops are men of God and they mm-hmm. essentially can do no wrong. Like they are just great men talking to talking to God and and administering God's uh, uh, desires to the to the members of the church. Uh, kind of coming through him, and, and then when you and then when you're out of the church, you like to just think like, ah, oh, this system is so messed up that all we get are bad leaders and bad leaders who mess up all the time and say hard hard things that hurt people. And the reality is, it's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. That these are just human beings, and because of their level of obedience and uh, loyalty to the to the church, they they get called into these positions. And some of them are good men. Some of them are men who maybe aren't quite as good. Uh, some of them are going to be much more empathetic and understanding and their life experience has given them, um, given them the, the, I guess the training to kind of pause and to handle things in a healthier way. Whereas others tend to be rigid and dogmatic and enforce things that even if it hurts people. And it sounds like you had a good Bishop. It sounds like this was a guy who knew when to say something and when not to say something. Yeah. Yeah. I've experienced both kind of bishops in my in my experience <laughs> through through my life. So, yeah, he was he was a good bishop, but I agree with you completely. You have different varieties in there, some very good and some not so good. Right. And was there and I I just want to follow up, was there any kind of anything he said that led to and and I want to say here too just as a a second statement to what you said about being Relief Society president. This guy seems like in one decision that I think most 
most in the church probably would have stayed shy of that. Even if they felt like they received a prompting to do that, they would have questioned it. This guy in one decision said, this person is safe. This person, you're welcome. Like, like she doesn't have the plague. Um, she's the, essentially, man, it had to have been like, as you point out, I mean, you got emotional there. It had to have been groundbreaking almost for this expectation of what was going to happen. And then rather than that expectation kind of carrying out, this guy actually puts more trust in you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it, I, I had no idea what to expect going to, to my bishop and it could have been awful. It really could have been, uh, things could have gone completely different, but the way that he had handled it was, and it, there was some time between when I came out to him um, and to when I became Relief Society president, and I had made some some big changes. I had followed up with him, and he had asked me how I was doing, and I told him my progress and how much I was working and how much I was trying. And, um, and then I remember that it was a sacrament meeting. I got up and bore my testimony, and when he called me into his office to set me apart, like to call me to be a Relief Society president, he he said, you know, I've been trying to figure out, I've been debating who I should call to this, and he said, when you got up to bear your testimony, I knew it was you. And Beautiful. yeah, it was. Okay. Um, this bishop, I, and I always wonder, I wish there was a way to <clears throat> get every leader to go on the record with how they frame these things in their theology. Did this bishop give any indication that he understood that um, being a lesbian wasn't was something that you just inherently were and it wasn't going to go away? Or was this a guy who thought because the church some in a lot of ways teaches it, in a lot of ways teaches it, uh, did he expect you to be able to kind of fix this? I don't know. We never really discussed in depth about what it was. He had actually, from my memories, I remember him telling me that he really doesn't, he admitted to me that he didn't really know what to do. Because after, after I had told him and he was, after I had come out to him and said, I'm, you know, I have this relationship, he had kind of sat there for a little bit and was just like, okay. And I was, like well well what am i supposed to do how can i how can i fix this and he i just remember him being like i don't know i i don't know i've never had to deal with something like this before and i really don't know much about it so he was he was very honest with me in that he he didn't have the tools that he needed to to really help me. And in all of reality, the church doesn't have any tools to help people in my situation. They, they don't because of what the doctrine of the church is teaching. But the fact that he came to me with love and treated me like a normal human being, like anybody else, that was the turning factor. That was the key because he didn't have any other, knowledge of how to handle something like this, he came to me with love. And that's what, what, because I know that there are so many LGBTQ 
people who are still trying to be within the church and make the church work and the way that the leaders can help them, truly the way they can help them is just loving them and treating them like any other human being. Give them callings, give them roles within the church, and that will help them to feel that love within within there. Yeah, and, and I wonder too, like, a lot more I don't knows wouldn't be a bad thing, right? I agree. I agree. Um, so you talk about meeting meeting this guy who eventually becomes your husband, maybe run us through, I guess we're at that point where we need to kind of hash out that story. Oh boy, here it goes. <laughs> um, yeah, this, this part of the story is really hard for me um, because I got married. So I, I, I meet this, this young man. Uh, he's in my college ward and, um, and I'm, I'm relief society president and he moved down from home with pretty much nothing. He was living out of his car for a while. He didn't have a job. He just felt like he needed to come to Cedar city. That's where I was going to school. Um, and so he wasn't going to school or anything because he didn't have money to go to school. He just moved down on a whim. So he really didn't have anything. And my heart went out to him like I could tell that he was struggling. And so uh, we became friends and he became good friends with my group that we we hung out with. And uh, and. and I really hadn't known him a, a really long time, but I loved to to do service. So I would create service projects to do all the time, all over the place. And he would always come and do them. And so for me, that was, I, I liked that about him. There were things about him that I, that I liked. I wasn't attracted to him. I wasn't attracted to any guy though. <laughs> So he he seemed he was very sweet. He was a gentleman. He loved service like, like I did. And so after just a short time, we started dating. Um, we only dated for about three months and then we got engaged. Uh, my sister was serving a mission at that time. And she um, we decided to wait for her to get married. So we actually had a pretty long engagement um, and waited for her to get back. And then we got married just after she got back. Um, and it, I, I had been, so I, I had been with my girlfriend and we had done things sexually um, and it was fun. It felt good. You know, all of these things and my honeymoon, um, I was scared, which that didn't help, but it was probably one of the most awful experiences of my life. Um, it was painful and I was just terrified. There wasn't any communication and, um, it was it was a very hard experience for me. Um, and when I, the next day, so because my sister had just gotten back from her mission, 
we got married on Saturday and then my sister was doing her homecoming on Sunday, her homecoming talk in church. And so we had stayed in a hotel in the neighboring town um, for our honeymoon night and then came back on Sunday. And I remember getting together my aunts and my mom and going into a room with them and crying and being like, is it supposed to hurt this much? Is it supposed to be this bad? And all of my aunts and my mom were like, um, it wasn't for us. But I had one aunt who said, yes, it was for me. And she said it. And I said, well, how long, how long is it supposed to be this bad? And my aunt said, it was painful for me for about a year. And that just like oh, a year, it actually was over a year for me that it still hurt um, when, when, when we had sex. And it was never enjoyable for me through it all. So that was a very difficult time for me because it became an obligation. It became a duty, something that I felt like I had to do. And there was no, um, I didn't feel like that there was any real concern from my husband at the time. Um, I don't know if I just faked it really well or if he just was really that oblivious to how difficult it was for me. Um, I tried to make any and every excuse not to have sex. Um, but of course, he he wanted it. He needed it. And so I felt like, okay, I have, I have to get this. Um, yeah, I think, eh. I, I think as, as guys, we, and I can only, again, I'm speaking in my own personal stories. As, as guys, we're so focused on that. Even if we're trying to behave and be good, even if you're in the church as a teenager, you, you figure out ways to know like what that's supposed to look like. And so there's this, there's this perception that you get to your honeymoon and this is just going to be crazy fun. This is just going to be the, the best thing ever. Right. You've been waiting so long and right. now, oh, here it is. Right. Right. And you assume it's mutual. You assume that both sides come to this like, yep, this is great. We've been waiting our entire lives for this. Um, and, and you're also young and you're still, I think, as you pointed out earlier in this teenager mentality where you're really just worried about yourself and you think you're invincible. And I think you come to these situations not really able to be completely concerned about another human being. You're still kind of selfish. And, and I don't, and, and, so as a guy going into that, I remember, I remember my honeymoon and I was much less considerate, but I didn't even, I didn't even know how to be considerate. I didn't know what that was supposed to look like. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's messy anyway. And then when you add an extra layer of, you know, you're a lesbian, <laughs> right. this isn't a, you're not attractive. Right. Um, right. As much as you like this guy, he's your friend. And, and it just, man, I, I my heart goes out to you, Kelsey. I, I can't imagine. I know, I know our honeymoon was, a little traumatic in that way. And I can only imagine yours being tenfold worse than that. Yeah, it was, 
it, part of the the hardship of that experience as well is in within Mormonism, and I can't speak for every family, but I know for a lot of families, I'm I'm taking a human sexuality class right now in school, and so the majority of the kids in my class um, are Mormon, and every single one of them said that their parents never talked to them about sex. And I know within my family, we had that lack of communication as well. We didn't, we didn't, you, that was something we just didn't talk about. And I know that it could make such a difference. And and I know that my husband's family, they're even more conservative than my family was. And so they never even discussed, like I remember one time maybe having a little talk about the birds and the bees with my parents but then after that nothing there was no open communication and i think that that is something that really damages people within the church because you're told not to have sex all through you know growing up no 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 and then all of a sudden this night you say okay go ahead and you don't expect there to be fear especially on the woman's side because they have no idea what to expect or, you know, what it's supposed to be like. And the, and the man has no idea what it's supposed to be like or how he can help the woman. And so I would love to see a change in the church with that to help both the woman and the man in, in these situations. Because it was, it was traumatizing for me. And it's something that I'm still working with to overcome even today. Yeah, I, I I don't know how you facilitate it, but you're right. Every every person getting ready to get married, especially in a system where people are um, strongly pushed to not have any kind of sexuality until the marriage has taken place, to to have some kind of safe conversation where people can hear like, oh, this is kind of what that's going to look like, and this is kind of the attitude you need to go in with. And this is how you need to be gentle and respectful. And, you know, again, communicate what you said wasn't there. Um, yeah. I, I think for many people, their first time, especially in Mormonism where it's after they've gone to the temple, they've been sealed. Now they go on this honeymoon or, or go back to the hotel for the night. And it's just a very different experience than what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody ever gives them the tools to, to navigate that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Where do we go from here? So you, this guy's your friend, but on but on some level, you also recognize like he doesn't have the tools to know to be considerate, to mm-hmm. be to be soft, to be, um, to be respectful, and to communicate in a way that allows you to have some power in how this works. Um, how does that yeah. all work out? So um, just after we got married. It was extremely difficult because sex was was terrible and awful, and I know that that was never going to get better because I'm a lesbian and I'm just that that is not that is not good for me, um, not with him. And so, you know, they talk about how marriage and life for the first year is supposed to be like this whole wonderful like oh yeah. we're on the clouds kind of thing. And I uh, outwardly, I played the part like I, you know, to everybody else, I put on this show of I'm so happy things are so good. And yet inside, this is where I began to really die 
because I was in this relationship that I didn't feel that connection, that love. I had had this, you know, short, it was, you know, around a year, a year and a half with, with my girlfriend that was beautiful, that was wonderful. And here I was sealed to this man forever that already it felt like hell. And so not long after we got married and things were just not getting better for me and things just felt wrong and terrible, I came out to him and I actually told my husband and I said, uh, I'm, I had this relationship with a girl. I'm a lesbian. And his reply to that was, well, you're married to me now and that's not going to be an issue anymore. And it just kind of was swept underneath the rug. And that was that. And I knew I couldn't talk about it again. I knew that that was something that I couldn't speak about. Um, we would be watching TV and Ellen would come on and he, he would change the channel and say, we can't watch that because she's she's gay. She's a lesbian. So he was very close minded. He he would not uh, allow himself to to watch or be a part of anything that was even remotely outside the lines of of Mormonism. And so I began to have that fear of, okay, I, I can't say anything. And I was shut down and I did. It was like this, this continual dying within myself. Um, not how, long- are, how are other things like, so, so the sexuality is a mess and it's causing trauma and it's in some ways even abusive and harmful to you. I get that. Mm-hmm. How's, how's the rest of your relationship? Are you, are you getting along? Are you friends? Are you enjoying going to dinner together? Are you like, like is, is the other parts of your marriage healthy? No, um, our, our marriage wasn't healthy <laughs> in a lot of different aspects. Um, I actually bought my own wedding ring because, because he had tons of debt and he had no money. So I bought my own wedding ring um, and I had no debt whatsoever. I had never been in debt, um, was able to manage my money very well. So we get married and I automatically come into lots of debt, which wouldn't be a problem except that he continues to add on to that debt. Um, he buys a, a new Toyota Tacoma when I'm the only one working at the time. He has no job. He's trying to start up a handyman business that falls through. Um, and then we have to get rid of our truck because we can't afford to keep it because I'm working for, you know, $11 an hour at a home for troubled youth. I mean, it's just, it was, there was a lot of take on his end and not a lot of, a lot of give. Um, and he would ask me all the time, like, what can I do for you? What can I give to you? Cause he wanted to give me, uh, the problem was that the thing that I always asked for was for us to get out of debt. And that almost seemed impossible to him. And so he would just add on to it more. He'd buy more things and only things that really helped him. He would buy a motorcycle or, I mean, not like little things, but he would buy big things that, that just continued to add on to that. Um, we wouldn't, we didn't go out on dates very often. Um, we didn't have a lot to talk about. Our, 
our mindsets were very different. Our, we just, we didn't have a lot of similarities and things we liked. He loved to watch old shows. So most of the time we'd sit at home and he would watch Hogan's Heroes, uh, and episode after episode of Hogan's Heroes. And, and yeah, it, it was really difficult because there wasn't a lot of interaction. There wasn't a lot of, of anything outside of what he enjoyed. Um, we ended up having two children, a girl and a boy. Um, and I remember as my oldest, Maggie, got older, there was this one time when um, she was complaining because she hated her dress. She It was a Sunday. We had gone to church, come back home, and uh, Maggie was like, can I get out of my dress? And I was like, yeah, sure, because I hated being in a dress. But I had always stayed in a dress all day on Sunday because that's what my husband wanted. That's what he said that the prophets had told us to do, that we're supposed to stay in our Sunday clothes all day because that's what he had been taught when he was a kid at home. And so I told her, yeah, sure, go ahead and get out of your dress. And my husband got angry at me and he's like, no, she has to stay in that dress all day. And I said, she's just a little kid. She's going to get it dirty anyway. You know, let her get out of the dress. And we had this big argument over staying in Sunday clothes all day on Sunday. And to me, I was like, this is such a small thing. And I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where it commands us to stay in Sunday clothes all day on Sunday. I said, this is a preference. This is not a set law. And um, he got so upset and just little things like that. And so I learned to keep my mouth shut. I never said no. I just went along doing my people pleaser thing of, okay, if that's what makes you happy, if that's what makes you happy. And um, I thought kids would fix it. We all think kids will fix things. <laughs> um, I'm grateful, so grateful for my kids um, because they were my sanity. They really helped keep me alive because they were my happiness and they were my joy. Um, where I didn't have that with my, my husband. So I am very grateful I had them. Um, and then we came up through this point to where um, it was about five years into our marriage. And five, five and a half. And I met this woman who I fell in love with emotionally attached. Um, we never did anything physically, but I fell in love with her and that started this spiral out of my marriage. Right. So, <clears throat> man, a <clears throat> uh, lot more coughing this morning. Um, <laughs> so, so obviously you get to this point and your marriage isn't healthy. You're not attracted to men anyway. Mm -hmm. You're you you've got to man. I can't even imagine some of the some of the weight you're you're carrying in this life that you're like, man. I I I was told to do this thing, and I was told I was told it would work, and it's not working, mm -hmm. and it's so badly broken. 
Um, and then, and then, as you point out, you meet somebody, and which has to bring all this back up to the surface again of who you really are, and what what your life coulda, woulda, shoulda looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe talk about that unraveling, and and how this all begins to fracture deeply. So as I begin to fall for this woman, um, it I I begin to. F- feel so because I had been really good about making myself be happy. I I was really good at at pretending and putting that out there, this picture of perfection. Everyone thought my husband and I had this perfect marriage. And everyone thought, you know, that it, it was just perfect, that we were great, everything was perfect. I was really good at putting that out there. Um and it as as my feelings started coming out for this this woman and they started to become stronger, I started to feel so much more unhappiness and it was becoming harder and harder for me to hide that and to put on this picture of perfection and pretend to be happy where I was at. And so I actually went to my best friends at the time um a husband and wife amazing couple they they're still my friends today i went to them i remember sitting in their front room we lived in the same apartment complex and our kids are about the same age so we've we've been good friends for a while and i came to them and i was just like i can't i can't hold this in any longer and i came out to them and i told them i'm gay and I am so struggling. I need you guys to help me. And they just put their arms around me and they said, Kelsey, we love you. And it doesn't matter if you're gay or not. And I told them about everything I was going through. And they're like, Kelsey, you're not in a healthy marriage. They're like, it doesn't matter that you're gay or not. I, I mean, that is a factor in the fact that you're not attracted to your husband but they're like, you have so many other issues within your marriage. This is not healthy. Even if you were a heterosexual, this is not a healthy marriage. This is not a healthy relationship. And um, I remember the husband, he kept telling me, like, you need to get out. This is not okay. You need to get out. And they, both of them were in the church. And, and since then, he is out. Um, but my, she is still in, in the church. Um, but both of them still so supportive. She, she has been one of my best friends and completely loves me for who I am. And, uh, so that was kind of a, a very much a breaking point for me where I was like, you're right. You're right. This is, what am I doing? I have been living in this dream, in this, in this lie for so long that I've, I've just thought that this is the way it should be. And this is the way that it had to be. So I was making it work, but this isn't how it should be. And so I then talked to my husband and told him I'm having a hard time. And, and so at that point, he kicked in and started very frantically to try to hold on to me and to keep me. 
because his family, um, them being very, very orthodox Mormon, um, very much to the extreme side, though, more than any other Mormon I've heard of before, um, divorce would be uh, like the end of the world for my husband because of how they see things. Um, his parents are in a very unhealthy relationship, and yet they 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 will never divorce because that's you just don't do that. You you just make it work. And so he tried very desperately at this point to hold on to me. He started to give me more attention. He tried to do more things. And so at this point, I'm thinking, okay, he's putting out an effort. He's really trying. I need to try and put out an effort and and try to make it work for the kids' sake. Of course, it's for the kids, for for everyone else, even though inside I'm dying, I, I will sacrifice that for everybody else, for the kids, for my family, for everyone else's happiness. And it got to the point where, um, where so many people were telling me, you know, that it doesn't matter. Everyone else doesn't matter. Your kids matter, but your happiness will influence your children's happiness. And so you need, you need to let go of that need to make everybody else happy because until you're happy, your kids really won't receive and feel of that love and happiness that they need. Um, and so at that point we separated my husband and I, um, and then through that we, we did the divorce ourselves and, um, this part it's really hard for me too because I I felt so bad about having lived a lie for him for so long and then tearing that away that I felt so bad for him. He was a good guy, even though he has his shadows, just like everyone else does. I have my shadows. He's a good guy. And so I felt so bad. And so I left, I left him the apartment. I, I went and lived in uh, a little one bedroom place for a while um, until I could find something bigger for me and the kids. And um, I started working three part-time jobs at night so that I could be with the kids during the day um, and let him work during the day. So he had the kids every night and I worked at night. Um, we started doing this divorce uh, by ourselves and I trusted him. And I thought that he would be kind. And I didn't realize what he was putting into the divorce decree, but it came out very uneven um, because I had the kids because I had the kids during the day. And I didn't have them at all at night. The court system goes by how many nights you have the kids is how you count up the nights that you have. And that's that's the that's the custody. So he was telling me he was like, well, technically, I have the kids every night. So technically, I have 100 percent custody, he said. And I was like, but that's, you know, not fair because I'm with the kids during the day. And so he said, okay, well, how about we do 60-40? I have the kids 60, you have them 40. And he said, and when we put that in there, then it shows that you owe me child support 
but we won't worry about that. You don't owe me anything. And I was like, okay. But in, in our papers, it says that I owe him money every month. And it says that he has the kids more custody than I do. And it worked out okay for the first couple of years that we were divorced. We shared the kids 50-50. There were no problems, no issues um, until he got remarried. And when this woman came into the picture, my life, I felt like it was over for a while. Um, they tried to take the kids away from me. Not completely, but they tried to take more custody of them. And he tried to make me pay. And the kids were the only thing that I had. And it was so hard. Because I felt like I had been abused in my marriage and that I had finally gotten out. And at this point, I felt like I was still being abused. And it wasn't fair, but part of it was because of what the church was saying and what he was taking from the church, that I was not a good enough parent to have the kids that because he had a home where there was a mother and a father, that they should have more custody of the kids and that they shouldn't have as much time with me because I was gay. And that put me probably into the lowest point of my life that I, that I had ever been. The, uh, the night and day thing seems silly to me. Like to have your kids while they sleep, while the other parent takes care of the daily routine. And right. Uh, I, anyway, I'm just sorry. Like sometimes these rules and regulations, which is one facet among a, a, a dozen unhealthy facets here, seem set up to reward the parent who doesn't, who's not dealing with the, the daily stress. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it, it seems unfortunate just at that initial level, and then you add to it the the manipulation that goes on in the church in terms of painting a picture that somehow a parent who's gay is and, and we added to that right in November of two thousand fifteen we yeah. we essentially say that a parent who's gay is somehow broken less than unqualified mm-hmm. um, to be to be a functional part of of a of a healthy family. Uh, and the messaging all from from growing up in you know primary on up is that a home with a mother and a father and it's one thing when we say like look two parents are better than one generally it's another thing when we say a man and a woman is just it's a night and day way better situation than two women or two men um, and we and we tend to have this undercurrent that if we allow our kids our our children in the church to be around someone who's gay somehow that's contagious and they catch that. And so we need to keep as much distance there as possible. And yeah. Um, anyway, I, I just, my heart goes out to, to you in that situation. It couldn't have been easy. I want to, I want to ask if you had, did you have support around you? Did you have people, whether it's family or friends, did you have folks at that time who were um, giving you some stability and some positivity? 
Um, so at that point, so I have to back up a little bit. Um, just before I got divorced, I came out to my parents. Uh, and then essentially from there, it just kind of, everybody found out, um, and everybody knew for those who didn't know surprise. Um, my parents at first, it took, it took probably a good year before my parents, they, when I came out to them, I told them and, and they were very loving and just like, it doesn't matter. We, we love you. You're our daughter. It doesn't matter. Um, and at first it was this, cause my father was, was Bishop in the Bishop Brick at the time. Um, and, uh, they, both my parents have served, you know, my mom is Relief Society presidency and, and all, all throughout, you know, their lives. And, um, so at the time my dad was this bishop and, um, for him actually, I feel like he handled it very well. He was very, uh, just loving and supportive and he didn't really express any, any concerns, but that's my dad. He doesn't really express, um, a lot of my, my, my dad's a very sensitive and he's a very spiritual man. Um, but he, he doesn't ever really talk about concerns that he has my mother on the other hand um she would call me up crying afterwards um she called me on the phone one day and she was just like in tears just saying kelsey what does this mean i don't understand what does this mean and i was like mom it doesn't mean anything i'm still me i'm just i i love women <laughs> it, that, that's the only thing i'm still me and you had always been you, yeah, right? Like you always right. were a lesbian, even though they didn't know it, nothing really had changed. Yeah, nothing had changed. It was just the knowledge of now they know. Now now you know that this whole time I have been a lesbian, nothing's different, nothing's changed. And, and that's kind of hard for people to understand when somebody comes out. It really doesn't change anything. I'm, I'm still, I'm still me. And so, um, my mom is amazing and she was just like, I love my daughter and I want to do anything and everything that I can to try and understand this and make sense of this and do whatever I can to help her. So my mom jumped into the social media world and found supportive groups for parents with gay children she found a really good supportive group within uh, the Mormon religion um, that has really helped her to connect with other women who and men, mothers and fathers of children, um, of parents who are still in the church, um, but who still support and love their children completely and wholly and want the best for them. Um, and so she she delve she dove into that and has just been so enriched in that that area she i am very proud of the the length that my parents have both come in this journey um i have learned a lot i have changed a lot um and i would have to say that my parents have matched those steps with me and they have come completely 180 from where they used to be, uh, 
they they're different people and i would have to say they are better people because they have a love for everyone now whereas before they would avoid or um just not talk or think about people who were different than from them and now they're opening up their arms to people all over who are different and who struggle or any anything they don't even have to be part of the lgbtq they are opening their arms to them and saying we're different but we love you we love you um which has been really amazing so at this time when i'm going through this struggle um i had actually just gotten back from a trip to Kauai um that i had taken by myself and just kind of to find me, uh, do some deep soul searching. I came back from Kauai. Uh, I didn't have a home, so I was living out of my car. And uh, um, when I had the kids, I was living at a friend's at a friend's house. Had an extra bedroom. Um, working in Zion at a uh, at a restaurant there. So having to commute far. Uh, things were just. There was so much going on in my life that was so difficult at the time not having a house i was i was homeless um having enough money to feed my children and everything but but also going through this fight with my with my ex-husband with the custody of the kids i didn't fully confide in my parents as to the amount of stress that i was going through because i didn't want them to worry um and at the time i had just gotten back so my connection with friends and stuff was not great um and so in this time i was very much i was very much alone and that made it even harder i really didn't have a community or and i really didn't have that foundation of friends that i needed and i should have i should have reached out to my parents cuz they were in a space that that they would have been there and supported me and helped me. Um, and sometimes I'm a little stubborn that way where I feel like I can take and handle things on my own. Um, but that was the time when I felt like death would have been a better option for me. And I know had I reached out to the resources that were there, it would have been better for me. So I encourage anybody struggling there are people out there. There are friends out there. You just have to reach out and and call call for help, and help will come. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to downplay kind of the last bit you said there. I think those words are important. I think, as I was telling uh, Mikkel yesterday, the, the difference between whether somebody figures out a way to get to the other side of this or whether somebody makes the unfortunate and sad decision to like, like their life just has no worth. And so they make an attempt to end it. It, it feels like sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's just a friend reaching out at the right moment. And we all hope that's what happens, but the reality is that that isn't what always happens. And so yeah. As you point out, like sometimes we have to take the initiative. And if we're hurting, there are people who love us, who are ready to hold that with us. Mm-hmm. And and we just have to reach out and say like, hey, I need you. I 
I'm hurting. Is there anything you can do to be of, of support right now for me? And there are, I mean, in, in our lives, there are people who are willing and ready to do that, as you said. Um, I, I also want to mention, too, I've met your parents now maybe maybe as many as a half dozen times. Um, somewhere around there, three, four, five, mm-hmm. six, somewhere in that range. And what I notice about your parents is they're willing to get uncomfortable. Um, so many people in the church, and in, and in our world at large anyway, are so certain, so sure about their framework that anybody who looks different, feels different, sees different, it's almost like, oh, I got to stay away from them. That's too risky. Right. And your parents seem willing, and, and I get like it's it's this process and there's been this growth in them. And, you know, a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, it would have looked different. But I, I see them always leaning into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think you've got amazing parents, and I, I think that if there's anything to be said there, it's if we if we're really open to being unsure or even letting go of things we believe that don't hold up, they're not true. We've told ourselves stories, and they don't hold up. The only way we're going to come face to face with that and become something more is if we lean into it, like your parents have. Oh, definitely. My dad, just for Thanksgiving when they came down to visit, um, he, so both my parents are still very much in the church. Um, but Elder Oaks's um, talking conference this last time really struck a chord with them. It just, it hurt them as much as it hurt me because they love me and they love so many people in my situation. And I was amazed and so grateful at at them being strong enough and brave enough to step outside and say, this is a man that, that we see as an apostle of God, and he has said something that is not true. He had said something that is not right. And that has has opened up so much more between my parents and myself. I I can talk to my parents about my my ideas and my beliefs because I'm I'm no longer in the church. And and but they respect that. They understand and they can see why because we have discussions about it. They open themselves up to those discussions and at Thanksgiving my dad starts out a conversation as soon as I get there and says, "Yeah, I've been I've been a uh, doing some research and studying about my own gender. And I, I look at my dad going, what do you mean, dad? And, and he's like, well, I just, I don't think it's black and white. Like we, like we have thought for so long. He says the church tries to make things black and white. And what I've come to discover is that there is a lot of gray in there and we can't view that the, the world is black and white because it just isn't that way. So uh, my parents are, they have, they're amazing to be able to hold on to their religion, but also give that space to step back and question and look at things that are different. Right, right. It'll be interesting to see, you know, as as your mom and dad both lean into it going forward, which I, I assume they will. They just look like they're the kind of people that are going to do that, what that looks like in a year, five years, or 10 years. Um I want to ask you, just because we've talked here about your parents' relationship, kind of staying in the church, but becoming 
softer and more empathetic to those who are different. Uh, where, like, where your relationship with the church through all of this, uh, and this probably we're probably getting kind of towards where we need to wrap up and talk about the fracture with the church. Talk about where the the sunshine starts to come out again, uh, and then leave the listeners hanging one more time. <laughs> um, mm. Maybe talk about your relationship with the church and where that kind of falls apart, and then tell us uh, when you start to see the sunlight again. So I, um, even after I got divorced, I had come out, I divorced, I still, um, I still tried to stay within the church for a little while. Looking back at it, I really wonder what kept me, um, hanging on to the church there and why I, I continued to go for a, for, um, a while. We probably, I took my kids to church after I got divorced for probably about six months after, after all of that. And, um, I, looking back at it, I can realize that once again, it was that people pleaser within me. Um, I, I became, I started becoming very detached from the church just because of what it was teaching and what it was saying about people who were different. Um, I felt like they had set up this box and they said, okay, We've got all of us in this box, but if you don't fit all of the requirements, if you don't, if you don't fall into, into this area with all of us, then, then you, you can't stay in the box. Um, and I, I got to the point where I realized for, for a little bit after I divorced, I actually dated a man, <laughs> uh, um, in attempt to try and continue. Cause part of me was like, well, what if, you know, what if it was just an unhealthy marriage? What if, what if that was a big part of it? What if I could make it work with a man and still be in the church if I was with a man who could give me more of what I needed, you know, other than the sexual part, because obviously that's not going to happen, but everything else, you know, if, if it was good, maybe it'll work. So I, I dated a couple of guys actually um, after I divorced and continue to go to church in that desire to still, to still please, to still make other people happy. And it was probably about six months to a year when I began to realize I don't have to live a life for the church. Cause that's what I, that essentially that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to live a life that would please this system and that system did not make me happy. And I remember reading in my scriptures, the scripture that says men are that they might have joy. And I was going, this isn't joy. If I really have a father in heaven who loves me as a father, he would want me to be happy. He would want me to enjoy life and to be happy here and now, not just in the afterlife. And essentially, that's what my parents came to as well. At first, they were like, oh, it's okay if you're gay. You just can't act on it. And that put a lot of weight on my shoulders as well. Coming out had lifted off so much of that weight, but then having that idea, oh, it's okay for you to be gay. Just don't act on it. That weight just fell right back on my shoulders and it was so heavy and hard. Um, and so letting go of that, I finally felt 
that true freedom of not having to carry that burden and that weight anymore. And I began to realize that my life can look different than what other people maybe expect or people want for me. And it's okay. I don't have to live my life for the church. I can live my life for me and I can be happy and I can respect the people who are in the church and live their lives in the church and be happy for them because that's what makes them happy. And so that's, that's what it boiled down to was that I believe that everybody deserves to be happy. Everyone deserves to have joy. And when it came down to that, I knew that I wasn't happy in the church. I hadn't been happy in the church for a very, very long time. And I had just been playing the part. I had just been doing the motions um, that I think so many of us fall into. But it wasn't bringing me happiness. And so that's when I, I let go. I let go of the expectations that I had for my for myself within the church. I let go of the expectations that I thought my parents had for me within the church and extended family and friends. And I let that go. And when I did... That truly is when I felt the most happiness in my life and the most freedom that I had ever felt in my life to start to discover my authenticity and to really discover who I was. That was happiness. That was joy for me. Beautiful. We have this scripture in Mormonism, right? Adam was that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. Mm -hmm. And we don't, as Mormons, recognize the realization that whilst the church works for some, it also doesn't work for others, and that some of us have to leave in order to find that joy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Is this a good place to stop or is there something yeah. else you think nope. we need to add? No, this is great because the the happiest of my uh, life is about to come. My better half. Okay. <laughs> so. Cool. Then we will we'll end it here. Episode two. We'll leave the listeners again in suspense. Uh, and then we'll bring you and Mikkel back and uh, we'll tell the, the most incredible story of two people who had led lives, lived lives that sacrificed authenticity uh, and now have claimed that authenticity back and uh, and find both their authenticity as well as belonging Um, and I think it's a gorgeous story so we'll leave it there Uh, thanks for being on thank you Bill what about
Ready? 